0: Go ahead with your tithes and offerings. You know, the monies that you're giving now support so many good works, including uh, the uh, launching of our campus on the west side. We're going to be two uh, locations, just one church in two places soon. Uh, We had over 200 at our first meeting of that group last week at 9 o'clock, and uh, we're very excited about this. They've got this high-def screen they pulled down, and they put up the DVD of my preaching from last night on there. And it is full length, and I'm telling you, it looks like I am really there. It is amazing. In fact, they even airbrush so that I look more handsome than I do now. <laughs> so I'm just saying sometime in the next few weeks, you might want to one Sunday go in and worship there at 9 o'clock just to meet some of your brothers and sisters that are going to be doing God's work on the other part of Tarrant County. I think you'd be encouraged to know them, and I know they'd be encouraged to know you. Have you ever wondered what it would take to get some people's attention? You've been at a restaurant and your tea glass is empty and you cannot seem to get the attention of the waiter or waitress to come and refill it. Or you're at a ball game and you see a friend off in the distance and you stand up and you whistle and you wave your arms, but you cannot get their attention. We know what that's like. A woman named uh, Tassia Dale sent this story in recently to Reader's Digest. She and her husband were in a large electronics store and all he wanted to do was just buy a small package of batteries and he could get the attention of no salesperson to help him. He was about to leave when his wife said, let me take care of it. She walked over to the huge plasma TV screen, pulled out a tape measure from her purse and began measuring it. (laughs) She was immediately surrounded by people that wanted to help her And she said, yes, you can. I want to buy some batteries. (laughs) Sometimes it's more serious. We know of friends who have been told by their doctors, you've got to change your lifestyle if you want to live longer, but the doctor just can't seem to get their attention. I've been in juvenile court with young people who've stood before a judge who has said pretty sternly, you appear before me again and you'll do some serious time. But... The judge wasn't able to get their attention. And sometimes it's this way with God. Who is remarkably patient as he tries to get the attention of people. Who need to turn their lives around and repent. But there comes a moment when he stops calling in mercy. And he calls in judgment instead. That's what we're going to consider this morning. We are going to talk about Judgment. Now I know what you're thinking, because I was on a brief sabbatical and I come back and the first week I preach on depression and now I'm going to preach on judgment. And just so you'll know, next week I'm going to preach on demons and the occult. And so you're thinking, that must have been the worst sabbatical in history. (laughs) No, I'm just dealing with what the text is dealing with and this week that's what we're going to talk about. And you know what? I was flooded last week with emails from people saying, I needed that lesson on depression. And I'm believing that today there are some people here that need to hear a strong word about judgment. So open your Bibles to 1 Kings 21. We're going to consider the story of Naboth's Vineyard. Now, this is a long story. And I could just sum it up in a couple of lines. But the Bible says the public reading of Scripture is good for the church. So I'm going to read this whole story. And I'd like to ask you to read it along. With me. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord, or Yahweh, forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreel had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. Now his wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? And he answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard or if you prefer I'll give you another vineyard in his place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel his wife said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Okay, right there, Ahab should have said, no Jezebel, I know how you operate. You stay out of it. Okay. His total failure as a husband made him a disaster as a king. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city with them. And in those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have him testify that he's cursed both God and the king. And then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city did as Jezebel directed in the letter she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. And then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. And then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, "Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you. He's no longer alive, but a dead." And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Now you've got to realize that it's been five years since Ahab has seen Elijah. Five years. And God's act at carmel, God sending the rain, God sending fire from heaven, none of that got Ahab's attention. And God is through calling to mercy. God's about to call in judgment. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He's now in Naboth's vineyard where he's gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs lick up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, so you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And I'm going to bring disaster on you. I'll consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I'll make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Basha, son of Abijah. Because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, by the way, this is the only time in the Bible that when God sends a judgment to a ruler, he gives it to his wife too. And we're going to see why in a moment. Concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city and of the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife. So, let's take a moment. Let's just go back through this story. You're going to wonder at first, what does this story have to do with us today? I have never stolen anybody's vineyard. But we're going to see once again that the Word of God is living and active and it speaks to us today. See, strongly influenced by the values of Baalism, Ahab saw land as a commodity. And he saw himself as a great bargainer. Who can out-bargain the king? So he just figures, I will go down. I want that vineyard. I'm a king. I'll get what I want. I'll offer him whatever it takes. And he didn't anticipate that Naboth was one of those 7,000 that still hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. That he still worshipped Jehovah. And his convictions and his values were shaped by that devotion. You see, Torah... The law of Moses declared that land was a stewardship to be managed for God's purposes. It was a totally and completely radical view of land. It goes all the way back to Leviticus twenty-five, twenty-three, when God said to the people, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you are but aliens and my tenants. See what God did to the people of Israel when they moved into Palestine He set up the most radical economic system ever attempted. No government, no king, no democracy no form of government that's ever existed has ever tried an economy that God told Israel to try. And it starts with this God owns the land. It's God's land. And He's going to give to every family and inheritance and that land stays in that family forever if you get in trouble you can sell it for a time to someone in your family they can redeem it and in the year of jubilee 50 years it all goes back and so under god's economy nobody ever gets displaced nobody ever becomes homeless God says, I have created enough resources in my creation to take care of everybody. So no hoarding, no powerful grabbing more than they need. Everybody gets some land and it stays that way. So you see, when Naboth says, the Lord forbid that I should sell my inheritance. He's not just being faithful to his land. He's being faithful to the will of God. Land was not a commodity. It was a gift from God. Uh, Numbers 36, 7 says, No inheritance in Israel is to pass from tribe to tribe. For every Israelite shall keep the tribal land inherited from his forefathers. Now, This made no sense to the pagan world. Because the pagan world then and the pagan world today lives by the principle, might makes right. And if you've got more guns, or if you've got more money, you go and you get what you want. And the little people, well, that's why they're little people. But in Israel, no matter how big you were, You couldn't take somebody's inheritance, no matter how small they were. Ezekiel says, chapter 46, The prince must not take any of the inheritance of the people, driving them off their property. He's to give his sons their inheritance out of his own property, so that none of my people will be separated from his property. So do you see the economic system then? Ahab is asking Naboth to do a wicked thing. Ahab has all the land he needs. His family and his tribe have all the land God's given them. Leave Naboth alone and let him keep his inheritance. And so Ahab realizes no price is going to be big enough because this man can't be bought. This man has a set of convictions that aren't for sale. And so he goes home. Now, he's not been wronged. He hasn't been cheated. He hasn't lost anything. But he goes home like a spoiled, petulant little child because he didn't get his way. And so the true ruler of the house stepped in. You see, Jezebel hated everything about the worship of the God of Israel. She couldn't understand it. She could not understand a religion where Peasants have the same rights as kings. Because in her view, which is the dominant view of most of the worldviews of the world, is that the less powerful are the most expendable. And so great was her contempt for the religion of Israel. She has tried all her life to stamp it out. And to wipe it out. And here some petty little grape grower is going to tell her husband he can't have what he wants on religious grounds. So Jezebel says, well, I'll tell you what then. On religious grounds, I'll show you how we do things. I want you to see how wicked her scheme is. She is going to use Naboth's religion to murder him. So she sends this letter with Ahab's seal, which, by the way, was illegal for her to use. And she sends it to the town and she says, here's what I want you to do. Call a fast. Why do you call a fast in Israel? Because there's sin and there's something to be upset about. Call a fast for the whole city and everybody's going to wonder, what's going on? Why are we under a curse? Get two scoundrels. Why two? Because she knows her law of Moses. You can't kill a man under the law of Moses unless two witnesses saw him do it. Then she says, say he cursed the God of Israel. Which is ironic because she cursed the God of Israel every day. You see how wicked she is? She's going to use Naboth's religion to kill the man who stood up for his religion. Call a fast. Get two witnesses. Say he cursed Yahweh. Take him out and stone him. And folks, it's even worse because it doesn't say in 1 Kings 21, but you read over later 2 Kings 9. You see Naboth had sons. Under the law, if Naboth dies, the land stays in the family. It goes to his sons. So what did they do? They killed the boys too. She wiped out the whole family. There was nobody left to legally inherit this land. Now you understand why. It says that Ahab sold himself to do evil. There's a little play of words in Hebrew that we miss in English. The word sold himself was the Hebrew word to marry. God said, Ahab, you married evil. And you feel good about it. And so she said to her husband, Get up and go get the vineyard. He should have asked some questions. The Hebrew says that she said, Arise, go take the vineyard of Naboth. But at the same time, the Lord God said to his prophet, Arise, go take a message to Ahab. And God's arise always trumps anybody else's arise. See, God's time of calling and mercy is over. I don't understand where the line is. God is so patient. The Bible says God is slow to anger, but the Bible also says there comes a point where you cross a line and God says, That's it! Judgment. Now where's the line? I don't know. God told Abraham, I'm going to give the Amorites 400 more years to repent, but not Sodom. Sodom has crossed the line. Judgment is coming. Think about King Herod and the axe. He's a wicked king. He killed James. He tried to kill Peter. Persecuted Christians. But he's off making a speech one day and they say, you sound like a God and he took that glory for himself and God said, that's it. Judgment. He crossed the line. God struck him with worms and he died. God said, Elijah, he's crossed the line. I have called and called and called and called and called in mercy to Ahab and I can't get his attention. So now it's judgment call. And the judgment was graphic and it was grisly and it was final. Elijah told Ahab, you cut off a whole man's heritage. You cut off his whole inheritance that's what the Lord God is going to do to you. He's not just taking you out, Ahab. He's taking out your descendants. He's taking out your kids. There's not going to be nothing left of the family of Ahab when God is through with you. And then Elijah left. And guess what happened next? Nothing. Nothing. God announced judgment and then he delayed the descendants. And I don't understand that. You know, the Bible is full of stories where bad things almost happen to good people. But the Bible is also full of bad things that did happen to good people. Like Naboth. Naboth is a good man. In hard times, just trying to honor God, and he got murdered, and so did his boys. Why did God let that happen? Why does God allow Naboth scenarios? And, and when they do happen, and God says, I'm going to judge you for that, then why doesn't he do it right away? Why does God wait? You know what? It was three years later before Ahab died. But even more crazy, it was 20 years later before Jezebel died died. Why did God wait that long? I don't know. I do know this. The Bible consistently warns us not to interpret God's delay as his indifference to sin or forgetfulness of sin. Like Ecclesiastes chapter 8 says, although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and he still lives a long time, I know it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Because God's will of justice may grind slow, but it grinds exceedingly fine. And if God is staying His wrath, it's like a big dam on a river. He is staying His wrath, but He is storing His wrath. And one day that dam is going to break. And it did. I'd tell you to go home today and read the rest of the story. Three years later, Ahab's at war against the king of Aram. He won't wear his royal robes. He just tries to disguise himself as a common soldier. And the Bible says one of the enemy soldiers took his bow and just fired it randomly and went through the air. It came down in a little crevice in his armor. It was a one in a million shot. Caught Ahab, he slumped right there in his chariot, bled to death. And when they washed it out, the dogs came and licked up the blood. Seventeen years later, Jezebel. Here's the Jehu. Is leading a coup against Israel. This woman is so wicked. You know what she does? She dresses herself up to seduce him. Comes out on the balcony. He says... Chunk her down, boys, which is a paraphrase, but that's basically what he said. <laughs> her attendants threw her over the balcony. She fell down to the ground. He took his chariot and he ran over her. Went in to eat and drink and said later, she's the daughter of a king. Go bury her. And his servants came back and said, we can't. Why can't you? Because all that's left is a skull in the hands. The dogs have eaten." There is no gravesite for Jezebel, because there was nothing to bury. I want to show you how faithful the judgment of God is. When Ahab died, his son Ahaziah became king. He only lived two years. We're going to talk about him next week. He consulted the occult, and we're going to find out what God thinks about that next week. And wear your seatbelt and come on time. So his son Joram became king. And God tells Jehu, You are the new king. And he leads a coup and he comes out against Joram. And guess what happens? Joram comes out to meet Jehu. Their chariots are meeting. And you want to know exactly where they are meeting? On the field that used to belong to Naboth. You think that was an accident? Listen to 2 Kings. Have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, he replied, as long as the idolatry and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. And Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery Ahaziah, he was the king of Judah. Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between his shoulders, and the arrow pierced his heart, and he slumped down in his chariot And Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, now get ready, you're going to hear some delightful irony here. Pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab his father when the Lord made this prophecy about him? Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground declares the Lord, now then pick him up and throw him on that plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. You get that? There's Ahab and he went down to get the plot of Naboth and he had a couple of chariot drivers behind him and one of them's named Bidkar and one of them's named Jehu. And they were sitting there on the day when they heard Elijah say, you're going to pay for this Ahab. And Twenty years later, that chariot driver Jehu will be God's instrument to slay the son of Ahab and going to throw his body on Naboth's plot of ground. And evil got its due the very place it was done. You see, God is slow to anger, but God will not be mocked. And His vengeance and His timing are perfect, even though we don't always understand it at the time. Now, as I said, I've never stolen anybody's vineyard. So this story doesn't apply to me, does it? Or does it? You're here for a reason this morning. And I'm going to share three words with you. And I guarantee you, one of those three words is the reason you're here today. Here's the first word. The judgment calls us to take seriously the wrath of God. God's wrath is not a divine... I get tired of preachers trying to explain away and apologize for the wrath of God. God never apologizes for His wrath. It's another one of His holy attributes. It's His impartial execution of justice against all those who mock His existence and His sovereignty. The earliest gospel preaching included the truth of judgment. Like in Acts 17 when Paul says, He has set a day when He will judge the world With justice by the man He's appointed. And He's given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. The resurrection says, among other things, Do you really think the Creator of the whole world is not going to fix things in the end and call you into account? you really think it doesn't matter how you live? You see, the message of the cross has this dual message of love and wrath. At the cross, the love and the wrath of God were poured out. A.T. Ironside, the great preacher, said, I was eight years old when I heard this illustration that changed my life. He said the preacher was saying that back in the days of the prairies and the pioneers were out there, that the thing that scared them most were not tornadoes, not floods. It was prairie fires. Those fires would come across the prairie blown by the wind faster than a horse could run. You could not outrun the fire. You know what they would do? They would intentionally set fire behind them to their own field. Set it on fire. And then go stand in the middle of the burned field they had set. So that when the bigger flame came, it would go right around them. Because the flame cannot burn what has already been scorched. And that preacher said, and that eight-year-old boy remembered it. God poured out His wrath on the cross. And if you stand in Jesus Christ, the crucified, that wrath can't touch you. It's already been burned. It's already been poured out. You don't get to escape the wrath of God for your sin. You get to choose where you meet it. You can meet it at the cross or you can meet it at the judgment. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven... Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now I'm telling you, I don't know who you are. But there's somebody or some bodies here this morning and you're in danger of being Ahab. You have lost the fear of God. And you know right now your life's in rebellion and God has patiently Time and again, tried to get your attention. How long are you going to trifle with the wrath of God? Take it seriously. Use better judgment when it comes to judgment. Because one day the call of mercy will stop and the call of judgment comes. We need to take seriously the wrath of God. That's what some of you need to hear. Here's a word for another group of you this morning. This story calls us, judgment calls us to take sides with the oppressed. Because God's judgment is going to be against all peoples and practices that allow the powerful to exploit those who have no power. That's how the world operates. Some people have power, some people don't. Some people have influence, some people don't. Some people are haves and some people are have-nots, and that's how it's supposed to be. And God's Word says that's not how it's supposed to be. God's creation is sufficient to take care of everybody. And the surprise in the story is not that God is angry at Ahab. The surprise is, why aren't the rest of us? Why did that city just go along with this kind of evil instead of stand up to him? See, I think people of faith are accountable to God for seeing that His creation gets used the way He wants it used. That means we, the church, we've got to be the Elijahs of today. We've got to stand up and we've got to speak up for people that don't have a voice, who have no influence, and who are always victims. We've got to speak up for the elderly and the handicapped. And the poor. And the marginalized. And the unborn. Who have no voice, but according to the justice of God, have the same rights as kings. You know, Jesus told a story about judgment. And here's the thing, on this great day of judgment that Jesus described... And the king separates the right from the left. It wasn't over doctrinal orthodoxy. It was over justice. And he says to those in whom he's pleased, Thank you. I was hungry and you came. I, I, was, I was in jail and you visited. I was sick and you were there with me. I was naked and you clothed me. And they said, We don't remember doing that. And Jesus said in Matthew 25 that the king replied, Whatever you did for one of the least... Of these brothers of mine. You did for me. Every time you stood up for Naboth. You stood with me. In her uh, book. Beautiful Mind Joanna Adams says. There was this guy at his church. He was a very very wealthy rich young. uh, uh, Advertising executive. Always dressed like he could be on the cover of GQ magazine. And her church had, every week, a, a foot clinic for homeless people. And you don't really think about that, but one of the things that you have problems with if you're homeless is, is decent foot care. And, and so homeless people would come to this clinic, and this guy would be there every Tuesday night. Straight from work, dressed to the hilt in nice clothes. And he's out there with, with some of the grungiest people in the city. And he's washing their feet and then he takes lotion and he rubs and massages their feet with his own hands. And then gives them pairs of socks to wear. And she asked him, why do you do this every week? And she said that he said, because I figure I have a better chance of running into Jesus here. Than anywhere else. And when judgment comes, the people that stood with the least are going to realize they made the right call. And that's a strong word we need to hear from this story. And then one more. And this is especially for those of you that are tired and discouraged. I think this judgment calls us to take courage in the face of evil. Living justly doesn't mean you're going to get treated justly. We live in a world where it seems like the Ahabs are constantly beating the Naboths. So how do we retain moral stamina to continue to do the right thing? Well, we do it the same way Jesus did it. We remember judgment. The Bible says about Jesus when He was on the cross, 1 Peter 2, they hurled their insults at Him. He didn't retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. Jesus never compromised. He never sold out or married evil because He knew judgment was coming. And God would make it right. You've probably heard the story when Charlton Heston was filming the classic movie Ben-Hur. He had to learn how to drive a chariot for that great race scene. And he practiced and he practiced and he practiced. It was very hard. And he finally came to the producer, Cecil B. DeMille, and said, I think I can drive the chariot. I don't think I can win the race. And the great producer said to him, You just stay in the race. I'll make sure you win. That's a good word. Stay in the race. Do the right thing. God will make sure you win. He's got the last word. and He makes the final call. You see, when I was a boy, the doctrine of judgment scared me. Not anymore. Now I understand that judgment is encouraging. It's good news. Why? Because my sins... Have already been judged. The wrath I deserve has already been paid. It's already been met. I chose to let Jesus take my condemnation. That's why I still get moved every single time. And I've sung it a thousand times. I sing verse 2 from It Is Well. I'd like to sing it right now. I'd like you to join us. My sin, oh You can sing that and mean it. Judgment's a day to anticipate. Judgment's a day when God is going to make everything right. When everything Ahab done and has done will be dealt with. And everything Naboth did will be rewarded. That's why the early Christians could look at each other and they could say come quickly Lord Jesus come quickly Lord Jesus because judgment was calling and it was good news I hope it is to you I'd like you to stand now if the prospect of judgment is frightening you today make it right some of you need to come today confess Christ you need to be baptized you need to let the wrath of God be poured out on Him Because you will have your sins dealt with by the justice of God. You get to choose where. You need to come and be baptized today. And if you have been covered in the blood of Jesus, then like the early Christians, you need to anticipate and speed the day when God finally makes everything right. It's good news. You come. Let's sing about it.